We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, the farewell discourse. Jesus is with his disciples for the last time, telling them the last things that he wants to tell them, or the last most important things that he wants to tell them. And a couple weeks ago, he talked about the importance of staying so close to Jesus that he is the vine and we are the branches and we receive all of our spiritual nourishment from him. And the reason we need to stay so close to him is because the normal, the normative Christian life for the faithful church is persecution. That's what we talked about last week. And so the disciples are very sorrowful. But Jesus wants them to know this week that they have a decided advantage. The Calvary is coming. And Calvary is coming, and the Calvary is the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to know that we are going to be more than okay. So would you please stand uh, out of respect for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing is by the Word of Christ. So let's listen intently together as the Spirit teaches us from His perfect, inerrant Word. This is John chapter 16, the second half of verse 4. Uh, Your your Bibles probably mark it out that way. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope it gives us. And for the insight it gives us, Lord, you tell us things that nobody else knows, that no one in the world knows but us, your saints, your church. And you tell us these things to give us confidence, Lord, and to keep our minds on things above and to not get so stressed out on the little things that happen on this earth, Lord. All those, sometimes those little things are super painful. But Father, you want us to know the end game and you want us to know uh, who we are what our inheritance is, even as we wait for you to return, and you want us to know that you are working in the world and that you are with us in power as you call us out to be your witnesses, Lord. So we pray that you would reveal all these things to us and teach us as your Spirit teaches us today through your Word, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you beautify your afflicted ones. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
A f- couple months ago, in the middle of our giant rainstorm, most of you probably saw the story of the Oroville Dam that came close to overflowing or breaking and flooding. The dam, uh, which travels or is on, it blocks the Feather River coming out of the Sierra Nevadas. In February, there was so much rain that the regular floodgate was opened, and the floodgates, it's a giant, a giant floodgate that lets the water go down through this concrete spillway, but the water, there was so much pressure that it dug into the concrete of the spillway with so much force that the existing structure was just kind of devastated in its path. And then the emergency overflow went over the top, and the erosion that it created in the earth created these new pathways for the water, so much so that the landscape was almost unrecognizable from what it once was. And why am I telling you the story about the Oroville Dam? <laughs> this, is, this is almost, this is a super good analogy for what Jesus is trying to teach the apostles here right now. He's saying, I know you're sorrowful. I know that it looks, looks bad. But I want you to know that I am about to go into the heavens and I am going to open up the floodgates. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is going to come out with so much force that it is going to rearrange and re, it was going to redo the religious structures of the day and even the pathways throughout the earth so that the religious landscape and everything will be almost unrecognizable to what it was before. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament was always present in the Old Testament. Everybody that ever got saved got saved by the power and the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But at Pentecost, something extraordinary happened. Jesus, having ascended to the Father, opened up the floodgates and outpoured the Holy Spirit into the world with such force that nothing would ever be the same again. And that is what he wants to encourage the disciples with today, and that is what he wants to encourage us with. In chapter 14, He told us that he would continue to be present with us. And here in chapter 16, he tells us exactly what he's going to do for us, for them, for the disciples, and also for us, the disciples that were yet to come. He is going to keep and put pressure on the world. He's going to bring us into a deeper knowledge of everything that he had said and did and what it means and Ultimately, he promises to get us safely home. And so the big idea, the thesis of this passage, what Jesus wants us to know more than anything else, is this. That since the Spirit promises to keep pressure on the world and to guide us and bring us home, we can have confidence and compassion in our witness for Christ. Since the Spirit promises to keep pressure on the world and to guide us and bring us home, we can have confidence and compassion in our witness for Christ. Let's take that one piece at a time. The Spirit is keeping pressure on the world. Look at verse 8 through 11. It says, And when He comes, the Spirit... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You remember a couple weeks ago when Jesus, on Palm Sunday, when Jesus and his followers took over the temple precincts and were preaching and healing people and, 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 and by his words, proving from the scriptures that he was the Messiah, that he was the King of Israel, and then proving through his miraculous, through his healings uh, in the temple, he was proving and he was applying full temple court pressure to the chief priests, proving that he was who he claimed to be. And the chief priests ultimately denied it and wouldn't accept it, even though they knew better. What Jesus is saying is his continuing presence with us in the world, that all of that is now going universal. That same pressure that he was putting on the chief priests, verifying uh, and, and exposing to them the truth of who he was and how they were rejecting it, all of that go, went from external to internal. It went from local to universal worldwide, and it went from just the chief priests and the ruling elite to the entire world. And so what's happening here, it's more, it's, this is more than just individual consciousness, right? Or conscious says. There are world movements that Jesus is talking about. He's talking very much about what he says in Acts 1.8, that the disciples and the church are going to be the witnesses and the continuing presence of Jesus on earth, starting in Jerusalem and to Judea and then off to the ends of the earth. And we see that throughout history, that, that Jerusalem, by the end of the book of Acts, has a very different perception it's changed. There's been huge blocks of priests that have come to the faith. There's still, obviously, rejection, but his witness and the pressure put on Jerusalem, the city where he was murdered, uh, has created thousands and thousands of converts to the faith. And then it moves on from there. Within just a couple of hundred years, that pressure has converted the Roman Empire. And then we see in our diet that the, the message has gone across across the globe. And so, yes, this is more than just individual consciousness involved in world movements, but it's certainly not less than that. And so for our purposes, what this is telling us, or how this is to, how this is to our advantage, is Jesus is letting us know, hey, the Holy Spirit is active, and he is applying a constant moral pressure at the level of individual consciousness in everyone, in these three basic things. And I, as, as I, as an unbeliever, I remember, I remember this experience. I experienced it as these subtle underlying gnawing fears, or these subtle underlying just uncomfortableness that was underneath a couple of layers of my boisterous denial of the faith. Three gnawing fears. The first, the Holy Spirit will convict of sin. And the gnawing fear uh, for the world is that all of our clever arguments are wrong. All of our clever arguments are wrong. There's a story about Rosaria Butterfield Chapman in one of her books where she had stumbled across a Presbyterian minister, and uh, she had began reading the Bible in an effort to disprove Christianity and argue against the faith. And she tells the story about she was having a party at her house, 
uh, and one of her friends, who was a trans woman, who act, well, used to be a Presbyterian minister, <laughs> she was in the kitchen talking with this woman, and this woman said, talking about the Bible, and she all of a sudden just blurted out of her mouth, what if there is a Lord, and what if we're all in serious trouble? <laughs> and out of nowhere, and Rosaria Butterfield Chapman, a, a leftist, liberal, university professor, was a master, a master of every rational argument against Christianity. And yet, although she knew all that, out of the depths of her soul, when she was being pressed, having this pressure applied with this, this woman, was this, this, this admission just flew out of her heart. That's part of the story, as this woman said. She said, I prayed for years, God didn't heal me, but maybe he'll heal you. And they prayed together, and the next day she found milk crates full of Reformed theology books that this woman had came and gave to her. <clears throat> the second gnawing fear, it says the spirit convicts, and I'm translating that word convicts as applying pressure. I, there's lots of debate about what that word means. Does it mean, when we say convict, do we really, it, how do we take that? Do we mean as a court of law? Do we mean, uh, I, I'm taking it in the means of applying moral, known moral pressure, just, just keeping it right there in front of your face. This is true. You know it's true. There's no hiding from it. You can reject it. You can ignore it. You can stuff it under the rug. But it's just always there as this gnawing fear. Second, the second gnawing fear is of righteousness. My gnawing fear that I experienced was that my goodness wasn't going to be enough. My goodness wasn't going to be enough. The most popular religious idea in the entire world is that if our, at the end of the day, if our good outweighs our bad, then the scales will shift in our favor and God will let us into heaven. But the, a simple argument to that, or at least a, a question of that, is what, um, how do we know? How do we know it's a simple 51% shift? Is it really just a pass-fail? And if, if even so, 51%, can, we, anybody, can you really honestly say that you got 51% good to 49% bad? Or, you know, what if it's 50.5? I mean, we do a good job of keeping track of all of our rights, but do we really do as much? We don't do as nearly as good a job as keeping track of our thoughts, of our wrongs. But what if it's not even pass-fail? What if, it's, what, if it's a, a, what if you need a low C? What if it's 75%? What if you need to be in the top 10% of the class? What if it's 92%? How do you know? How do you know? You're playing a guessing game. You're rolling dice with that religious idea. But the reality is, here's the reality. The reality is, and we all know this, all this the reality is the, re- the requirement is 100%. To have fellowship with a perfect and holy and righteous God means that we must possess perfect holiness and righteousness. And everyone knows, everyone knows they can't do it. And so we fool ourselves with all these horizontally uh, imagined religious ideals. But even in the midst of that, the Spirit is keeping the pressure. It's 100%. And the third, the third gnawing fear of judgment is that gnawing, is that gnawing fear that as much as we want to convince ourselves that it's true that death is not the end. 
or even if we admit that death is not the end, the possibility that there might be something worse awaiting us. You know, there's, we talked, when we were doing the Ecclesiastes study, we talked about a modern ideal of a large group of philosophers that have come to believe that, that consciousness is itself the disease, is itself the malady, and so therefore the real true solution, if that's true, is if we are just biological beings that are accidental with no purpose, no beginning, no end, that the real solution, the only reasonable solution is suicide. And some people take that way out. I was just telling Caleb about a good friend of mine who ended up at Vassar College, brilliant, brilliant guy studying the existential philosophists and came to believe that and followed through on it and, and, and killed himself. But not everybody does that. There's a lot of people that don't do that because there's that subtle pressure, that knowledge underneath all of it. What if there's something worse? And isn't it, so isn't it, I mean, what, what that's saying is that the Holy Spirit isn't just active in the church. The Holy Spirit is active throughout the entire world witnessing these truths at, at some level to everyone. And so isn't it ironic that in a world that is obsessed, well, at least in California, let me say in a state that's obsessed with spirit guides, and spiritual teachings to find out that the Bible says there really is a spirit guide. But the problem is we just don't like what he says. We want him to validate our religious ideas and our horizontal religious ideas, and he doesn't do it. And the result is, is stress and a constant baseline anxiety that everybody feels. It is the constant tenor of our culture, a slight baseline, unnamed pressure, which is the Holy Spirit saying these things are true. And so not, dis- you know, not even discounting, not discounting the fact that there is a lot of help to be had with chemical imbalances in the, in the brain and medication, we have a whole host of people outside of that category who are trying to treat a spiritual problem with pharmacology and all other idolatries that you can think of. And the problem is that they don't work. They, I talked last week about an author named Robert Riley, and he... Uh, he wrote a book that, that makes this argument that the, the entire sexual revolution, we're in the third phase of the sexual revolution now. The first phase began in the 1920s. Second phase was in the 1960s. Third phase, current thrust right now, uh, is the third, the third phase of the sexual revolution. Uh, we talked about last week about how that delusion of autonomy and the delusion that that perfect sexual freedom will fulfill us and make us happy, that delusion requires a total buy-in from society and that persecution comes to the church, at least in some form, by that, prog- by that project that our culture needs to stamp out all dissenting 
opinions so that the delusion can be, can fly, in other words. And at the end of Riley's book, what he basically says is that the problem is that that's not going to work. The sadness is, really, the sadness of that project is it's not going to work. Even if we eliminate the church, even if we're able to eliminate all the knowledge of God in the world, that the witness of the Holy Spirit will still remain putting pressure on. And we see it. when We see it, people getting to the point where there's, there's no repression whatsoever, living the lives of their dreams, still miserable, still lonely, still empty, still absolutely impoverished. And it's sad. And so what we learn from this is that although the world may be able to stamp out the knowledge of the solution, it will never stamp out the witness. And so we as a church, we need to realize um, that our job is to witness in the, in the midst of that and, not, and to witness as an act of mercy and an act of compassion to the world. That is the Holy Spirit contains its witness that we work in and with that to present the truth to the world and to welcome the broken into our midst and to pray, pray without ceasing and to serve people and to not be afraid about what we may be losing in the culture but to be ready for when the broken people and God brings us broken people from out. So, summarizing that first point is that underneath all of the clever arguments, underneath all of the plausible deniability, underneath all the hypothetical possibility arguments, underneath all the moral outrage, there always and is remaining a small, still, quiet, and unmistakable voice that continues to say, repent and believe in the gospel. Point one. The Spirit is keeping pressure on the world. (sighs) Point two, the Spirit will guide us and bring us home. Look at verses 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. If you go to climb Mount Everest, you need to get a guide. You need to get a Sherpa guide. And Sherpas are not just the guys that carry the packs up the mountain. They're not just the guys that drive the yak trains. These is, is a people that live there in the mountains that know the terrain. Uh, they, and they have, many of them have multiple ascents themselves, and they even run their own guide companies now. And what a guide does when he takes you, when you take a guide, what a guide does is, number one, he, by his, by his knowledge of the, of the land, he is able to, to lead you into seeing and understanding and more of the beauty of the mountain. Uh, and secondly, even more importantly, he needs to get you there, and then he needs to bring you back safely home. Uh, And so this is the same way that the Spirit is our guide in the church. Here Jesus shifts his focus 
from how the Spirit is operating in the world and he shifts it to us. How is the Spirit operating to us in the world? It seems like most commentators, and even when I was reading this early in the week, seems to think that, that Jesus says, I, I can't tell you these things now because you can't bear it, i.e. that they'll be too emotionally painful for you to handle right now. But um, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I mean, how much worse could it get, really? He just told them that they're all going to get killed. <laughs> he just told them they're all going to be persecuted, kicked out of the synagogues, they're going to lose their family, they're going to be completely isolated in culture, and then eventually someone's going to kill them thinking it's doing God a favor. How much worse could it get than that, that they wouldn't be able to handle? And so I would think, I think what he's saying is that you can't bear it now in the sense of, I'm going to teach you things, the Spirit's going to to fill out what I've said and what I've done, uh, but it's too difficult to comprehend because things are too wonderful, and it's going to have to wait until the outpouring of the Spirit, until the floodgates are open to teach you all of these things. And so the first thing, he makes two basic promises in this second section. The first is in verse 13 where he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. There's a couple of ways that we can take this guiding into all truth. There's, uh, it, for, to, make, to, to make a long story short, when we compare it to all the other texts in the New Testament, we compare it to the Greek Old Testament. This is in the sense of, of the way it's used in Daniel and also in 1 John, where there's a dream or a vision or a revelation and then the Spirit guides into a, a full interpretation or a full understanding of what it was that that revelation actually meant. And so, in other words, it is talking about giving the power to rightly interpret what has been revealed to bring to light the full meaning of who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, revealing, in other words, the fullness of the beauty of Christ. Which is exactly what Jesus did. The first thing he did after the resurrection was he took a couple of disciples on an eight-mile walk and gave them a Bible study from the Old Testament, showing them the official interpretation of all the Old Testament meant. It was all pointing to me and the work that I would be doing, and then he opened their eyes to see him in the Lord's Supper. And so this has meaning for the disciples first, primarily. It's super important to categorize or to understand who the audience is when we're looking at the Bible. We can't just take this and say, Jesus said he's going to guide us into all truth. I don't have to go to school anymore. I don't need a master's degree. I'm just going to pray. Jesus is going to teach me physics. He's going to teach me kung fu. No need to learn. Or it, and it certainly doesn't mean bringing it down a notch. It doesn't mean that, that, that there is a, a, a direct line of revelation coming to each and every individual Christian. The audience, first and foremost, are the disciples. And so this is talking primarily about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in creating the New Testament, which was the authorized interpretation of everything that Jesus was, everything that he said, and everything that he did, what it meant and the fullness of all of that revelation that God gave us in Jesus, right? Jesus is the final comprehensive revelation of God. He is the Word. But it also means for us, it talks about what theologians call 
the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That although, yes, the New Testament is the final word from God, there isn't any other revelation coming from God. But even though that's true, we will never be able to tap fully into the depths of the New Testament and, and, and what it says about Jesus and how beautiful he is. There's a, great, there's a great saying that says, we don't need more revelation. What we need is a better understanding of the revelation we already have. And that's what this is talking about. What this is talking about is that as we study, as we meditate, as we pray through the Bible, and we talked about a few weeks ago that it's when we come across one of those aha moments, those insights, that's Jesus in his presence with us as our spirit guide, revealing these beautiful things that he has preserved for us in his perfect word. And we'll never get to the bottom of it. The richness of it is beyond anything that we could ever tap. It's not just intellectual truth, but also moral truth. It's Jesus saying how we walk in the Christian life with him and helping us to walk that out so that we can be witnesses in our lives as well as in what we say. And that is beautiful. The second, second promise that he says, verse 13, he will, de- he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so like a good mountain guide, Jesus shows us the end from the beginning, promises and shows us and assures us and shows us how he's going to eventually get us back home. This is a, uh, there's a lot that's being said here. There is, there, it's not just end times. There's seismic changes that are going to be happening in the perspective of these disciples and the church at this time. There's seismic shifts that are going to happen in their reality as they move from the God of Israel blessing Israel to coming into an understanding that since the very beginning, God has intended the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic blessing to at that perfect point in time to expand and spread out into the whole world. And there's going to be difficulties for them. We see that in Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, as they try to, to come to grips as a, as a people how big God's plan of salvation really is. And that was hard for them. It also tells them from their perspective about the constant persecution of the faithful church and what they'll be up against. But ultimately, what it tells us, what the book of Revelation tells us, that John wrote, same author as this gospel, is that even though the church will suffer persecution through the end, that we are victorious. That we are victorious in Jesus and that he has won the victory and he absolutely will see us home. We know how the story ends. We win. Amen. Amen. So, summary up to this point. Point one, God has promised through the Spirit to continue to put pressure on the world as to truth. Point two, that the Spirit guide is leading us into all the beauty of Christ that's been preserved for us in the Scriptures for us to continue as we walk this pilgrimage through this evil age. We can have our minds 
just blessed and soar into the heavenlies as we meditate and think of the things of Jesus and who we are in him and what we will become and his promise to not only guide us into the beauty of Jesus but to lead us home to that place that we'll be like him. And third, what that means for us is though, number one, the Spirit is keeping pressure on the world. Number two, the Spirit will guide us and bring us home. And number three, that means that we can be confident and compassionate in our witness to Christ. We can be confident and compassionate in our witness to Christ. I've been talking about the book Insanity of God for a while now. Um, Another great book about the persecuted church. There's a story uh, in, the, in the book about a guy named Dmitry who was a Soviet, he was a Russian factory worker in the Soviet era under the persecution of the church who started a, basically a homeschool Sunday school for his own kids. And before he knew it, it had grown into a 150-person church. And the Soviets didn't like that, and they arrested him and imprisoned him and kept him in jail. And as he was in jail, no Bible, no contact with the outside world, no nothing. What he did every day, some point throughout the day, he would figure out a way to steal or swipe a piece of paper and a pen. And at the end, and during the night, he would try to he would recall and remember every scripture verse, every every hymn, everything he could remember, and he would write it on this piece of paper. And in the morning, the cold would cause dew to form on the bars, and he would reach outside his cell, and he would slap it on the outside of the cell for all to see as an offering for God, and he would raise his hands and face the east and sing what he called his heart song to Jesus in his blaring loud voice. And the guards would come, and they'd see the scripture, and they'd hear a song, and they'd walk in, and they would beat him, and then they would leave, and they would beat him, and they would leave. And eventually they tried to convince him to sign a recantation of his faith, to sign a confession by telling him that his wife and his kids had been killed. But he says that the Holy Spirit let him know that they were not alive, that they were alive, that they were alive. And so when they came to have him sign the paperwork, he refused to do it because he knew that his family was alive, and he knew that the guards knew that his family was alive. And so he, he, he called their bluff, and they grab him, and they, call, they take him out of his cell, off to execute him, telling him they're going to execute him. And as, he's, as they're walking down the hallway of the cell, all of these hardened Russian gangsters walk out of their prison cells, and they all raise their hands and face the east, and they sing together this heart song, that Dimitri would sing to Jesus. And it's, he says in the story, the guards just stopped and looked at him and said, who are you? Who are you that you would have that kind of influence and that you would be able to withstand this kind of pressure from us? And they took him to the gate and they opened the gate and they threw him out of the prison. He was free. How did he call their bluff? He called their bluff because he knew the truth and he knew that they knew it too. And it gave him the power in that situation even though they could beat him, they could imprison him, they could take away temporary things. What they couldn't take away was his knowledge of the truth. 
And so what does that tell us? It tells us that we can be confident in our witness in the world. The world is, as much as, as the Spirit is pressuring us or pressuring the world, the world is returning that pressure to us. The world is pressuring us to sign on to their program, to sign on to the delusion that we are able to have complete autonomy in the world. They try to convince us that we're crazy, we need to conform, we need to buy in, and their power, all of their power, it lies in, in, in convincing us that we must be crazy. They must be right, we must be wrong, and the threat of losing things, the threat of imprisonment, the threat of death, whatever it may be in your section of the world, is that power that they have. But what happens when we don't play into that, when we call the bluff? It takes all that power away. It takes that power away because we know, because of the Holy Spirit's guidance to us, we know He has verified that what the New Testament speaks is truth. And because of the pressure that the Holy Spirit is putting on the whole world, we know that they know it's true. And that means we can be calm. That means we can be confident. We don't have to get shaken when they pressure us. We can remain calm and witness on. Amen? And because the Spirit has declared to us things to come, we know that no matter what happens here on the earth, it ends good. The world is also convinced to the idea that the biggest threat that they can put on us is, uh, is loss of something or death. But if we know the end is good no matter what they do, if we know, if we know where we're going, then that loses all its power too. We know that Jesus experienced persecution that ended in death, that ended in absolute glory for him, and that that is our That is what we should expect too. We know what to expect. We know how it ends. And so we can be calm in persecution and we can even rejoice in it. And the second thing, we can be confident and two, we can also be compassionate. How so? And I think this is is super important. The pressure that the Holy Spirit is putting on the world, that's why I don't like the translations that say, condemn or convict because it has a sense of, of, of retribution. But that's not true. That pressure that God is putting on the world is not, it's not, the, it's not judgment. It's the warning of judgment. And so it's God's mercy. It is God's compassion and mercy on the world. He's not leaving the world without a witness, without that pressure, trying, constantly holding it before them. Unbelief is sin. Your righteousness is, is not enough. Like it or not, one day you will die and you will stand before God and you will answer for your life. And so, why, why would you die? 
Why would you die in that? Why would you refuse? Why would you refuse the salvation that God offers? It's a plea. It is a plea to be saved. And as God's witnesses on earth, as Jesus' witnesses on earth, that's what we're supposed to be focused on. I think the church makes huge mistakes when we either we try to be the Holy Spirit and we try to be that pressure, or we as the church try to exert social or political pressure on the world. For we don't need to do that. The Spirit is doing that. That just makes people mad. Or we could try to be God the Father and be judge over all the earth before the time, but the pressure is not judgment. The pressure is a merciful warning of judgment. And so our call is to be like Jesus. The call is to be like Jesus, to be in the world but not of it, to have friendships with sinners in the world and to love them without condoning their activities, but to be in and among and with them, constantly holding out that offer of salvation, even as they pressure us to drop it. And we can hold that. We can hold that position because we know the truth, because we know that they know the truth, and we know that the end is good. Amen? And so we exist. We exist as a church. As a church, we exist to show the world the surpassing beauty of Christ, surpassing meaning over everything else, that Jesus is, in fact, the most beautiful thing in all the universe, and this is how we do it. That's how we do it. We stand, we breathe, we be calm, we hold out truth, we hold out reconciliation, and we know that everything's going to work out for us, and we pray that we'll bring as many people with us as we can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. It challenges us. Lord, we admit it's a scary thing. We, I mean, we live in the West, Lord, that we don't have persecution to speak of, but still it seems that there may be a day coming quick when we would have to worry about some of these things, Lord. We thank you for the peace that we have now, but we know And we can see the horizon, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us strong in you and in your might and not in of ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be grasping so tightly to the things of the world that we might be tempted to choose trinkets over the riches of your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be witnesses in a spirit of love, Lord. We are safe. We are safe, Lord. And we thank you for the knowledge that you are going before us, convincing of truth. And we pray that you would give us the courage to follow behind you, gently and in humility, holding open and holding out the offer of salvation. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us in that and that we would have the privilege of seeing people come out of death and into life. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.